Just for the day, I invite you to sit for the reading of our gospel, since it will come in three parts with some reflections after each of the, the parts, reflections by Lee and Frank and Charlotte. So as we prepare ourselves and our souls to be enriched, enriched by the words of the gospel, we focus our attention on today, which is in addition to the first day of Advent, the first day of the Christian year, is also World AIDS Sunday. So we may want to spend some time thinking about friends lost, about friends who are still struggling, about friends who were not part of our lives because they were lost, and to pray for a time when AIDS will not inflict any uh, around our globe. With that in mind, we turn to what's sometimes called the mini-apocalypse of the Gospel of Mark, which is a little bit strange. And after Jesus talks to them about uh, being being wary of false prophets and false messiahs and false signs, come these words. But in those days, after that suffering... The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and great glory. And then God will send out the angels and gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Amen. I was 15. I know this because it's the year I got my driver's license and my rat trap car. I worked at a bookstore. I went to church whenever the doors were open. I played soccer. I was on the debate team, and I volunteered. First at the Democratic Party of Mississippi and then beyond. This was my life. And because I had the car and could drive myself places, it's the first year that my world expanded passed beyond where my parents or my friend's parents could take me. And I met all sorts of people that I otherwise wouldn't have, mostly adults, people who maybe worked at the university or the library or the state medical center. Whole worlds opened up to me, outside of my home or my school or my church. I learned about things that I wouldn't have known before, They hadn't made the gossip circles, and they certainly weren't on our local news. It was from one of these new connections that I first learned that AIDS had hit my hometown. Now, on the surface, it appeared as though it had passed us by, hadn't made any claim, and was more a curse to, like, big cities or urban centers. And folks felt safe in that perceived distance. I soon learned that folks took great pains to hold on to that idea, that separation, and the delusion of living in a community that had been spared. But all this was unknown to me until that year. Up to that point, my knowledge of the disease was limited to 
my obsession with Tony Kushner's Angels in America, my devouring of Randy Stiltz's book and the band played on, and me playing the soundtrack to Falsetto Land over and over and over. All that I believed I knew would be minimized when I learned of the silent suffering of individuals and families taking place all around me, where AIDS had taken up residence with them. Men were coming home to die. Men stricken with the disease returned from places like L.A. or New York City, Chicago, all sorts of places beyond South Mississippi. And they came back to where only years before they had fled from because they couldn't live out loud as God had made them. And now, these same men, they were returning to die quietly in shame and in isolation. Now, some families just turned them away and depended on other people to either take them in or not. Uh, Other families did open their doors to their sons, not always out of kindness and compassion, but sometimes to minimize potential for gossip if word got round. Now, I heard about these men, and I could never unhear their story, their pain, and my soul wouldn't settle. I felt somehow compelled beyond my age, beyond any ability. I had to help. I started asking around, and it wasn't easy to find a way in to this tiny enclave of supporters and responders. But I found first a psychologist and then his wife, who actually were members of my church. And they, among a handful of others, uh, took my questions. I asked simply what I could do. They looked at me and asked if I was prepared if I could handle it, and not knowing at all what they meant, I said, of course I am. I was told to be at a certain place at a certain time on a certain Saturday, and I showed up. I was told not to say anything, so I didn't tell my mom where I was going. And when I got there, I noticed that there were just eight people. There were four from the medical profession. There were two older adult sisters who had lost a brother to AIDS, And there was a woman who was a social worker, and then me, this 15-year-old kid. A man looked at me and said, we're starting an AIDS hospice. I nodded instead of saying, I have no idea what that means. And I said, I'm in. With no organized medical response in town, no LGBTQ center, and no church willing to take on this need or these people, this small group of people decided they were going to do the work themselves. So we began to meet regularly once a week. The medical folks made connections with the Red Cross workers in our town. We were able to use a small classroom in their space. It was all done quietly. We ordered pens that in the bottom of each red pen had a Red Cross symbol, and we were briefed on how to respond if somebody asked us for help. I was trained to be an AIDS buddy. I was told I would be given names and locations of patients dying 
And they were spread out all over my town in homes that looked no different from the outside from any other on the street. But inside, these homes held so much pain. I was to go and to be company. And it turns out I was uniquely gifted at this assignment. I knew every Barbara Streisand song imaginable. I could sing at demand any musical requested of me. I could dramatically read out loud, sing hymns, and I could hold hands just fine. I'd been taught by this group of adults that I could hold hands. And so I clung to every hand that was extended to me. The other thing I soon realized was that these men whose hands I held and whose bandages I changed, they were like me. We had more in common than our cultural tastes or our minority political views. They were different in exactly the same way I was. I was in the closet to all of my family and to most of my friends, but I knew who I was, and these were my people. This was my community, and we were under assault. So my concept of being gay would always be wed to the names and lives of the men whose deathbeds I attended. They are still with me. In those days... The suffering seemed insurmountable, and the sky seemed nothing but dark. The heavens surely were shaken. And when faith could have been lost completely to despair, I witnessed an army of angels coming from seemingly nowhere. Angels gathered together to work and help and bear witness to our neighbors in the clutch of what felt like a plague. So maybe they came from the four winds or the ends of the earth. I don't know. I don't care. But I do know this, that they brought heaven with them. And they brought hope to those dying. And they brought hope to me. And my life from then on became about seeking out the angels to do the work of God. Continuing in Mark's Gospel. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. At the very gates, truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not 
pass away. I've got nothing about the fig tree. <clears throat> Many years ago, for some three months, I spent almost every waking hour <clears throat> and many sleeping hours with Tony at Memorial, <laughs> Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, trying to support, comfort, cheer him, yikes, in a dev devastating illness. I don't know how you do something like that without also being keenly aware of the heart-stoppingly sad, unrelenting suffering <clears throat> of all the others who, of necessity, come into contact with at a place like Memorial Sloan Kettering. Older people, younger ones, infants. Gender notwithstanding, race notwithstanding, beliefs notwithstanding. All of them with bodies and minds ravaged by both disease and treatment. All of them loving and being loved by other people. Strangely enough, when Tony died there, it wasn't Burkett's lymphoma that killed him. That was finally in remission, the doctor said, after weeks of aggressive chemotherapy. Instead, it was one of those incurable infections people with compromised immune systems are laid wide open to, a pneumonia that destroyed his lungs. He spent his last days on a ventilator and a medically induced coma. It fell to me to decide exactly when that coma and his life would end. And to be with him, to stand at his bedside, to hold his hand, to weep uncontrollably, to speak those crazed, pathetic, loving words I never thought I would helplessly have to say. As life support was slowly withdrawn, his sleeping eyes gradually opened, and breath no longer entered and left his body. The loss I experienced then was incalculable. It still is. But at the same time, I was incredibly grateful to anyone who managed to speak to me afterwards without saying, sorry for your loss. Because in my mind, my loss was infinitely small compared to what Tony lost. All the years he would have lived, the people he would have met, the things great and small he would have done, the stories he would have told, the music he would have made. We all experience grievous loss but if we have empathy, even in our own deepest sorrow or need, empathy enables us to remember that on any given day, in any given situation, alone or among others, we exist in a context of other human beings, both known and unknown to us. We do not rejoice or despair alone, ever. Earlier this year, I went to the AIDS at Home exhibit at the Museum of the City of New York. I went several times, in fact. The first thing you saw when you entered the gallery was a large painting by Hugh Steers, who died in 1995 of AIDS at the age of 32. The painting is called Bath Curtain, and it shows a man lying wearily on, in an old cloth foot bathtub under a window through which the sun is shining. The undrawn shower curtain at the end of the tub where his back is resting obscures the man's face. Another man sits facing him on a stool outside the tub. In both of his hands, he holds the outstretched hand of the man in the tub, gently massaging his fingertips. As heartbreaking as the scene always appeared to me, 
the whole painting has a luminous quality that elevates that scene and the two men in it. I never looked at it without feeling that this beatific glow only emphasized the fact that even the smallest act of kindness, of care, of humanity from one person to another is an instance of grace that brings us closer to God. Tony believed unshakably that he once saw an angel in the elevator at Memorial Sloan Kettering. She was just an ordinary-looking woman to all outward appearances, he said, but he knew absolutely that she was an angel. I kept my skepticism about that to myself at the time, but as the years have lengthened and people have done what I can only describe as angel-like acts for me, so has my conviction grown that Tony absolutely did see an angel in the elevator that day. It might even have been someone very much like you. Continuation of the reading from Mark. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only God. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like someone going on a journey, and when they leave home and put their slaves in charge, each with their work and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cock crow, or at dawn, or else they may find you asleep when they come suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. In 1983, I went to Los Angeles for three months and stayed for three years. I soon looked for a church that I could relate to, and I found uh, the Church of Religious Science. I had met this fireball of love and energy of this woman named Sandy Scott in San Diego, and she was approached by a small group of men to say, you are needed in Los Angeles. So she came and started this church. Uh, The church was about 75% gay men, um, a trinkling of lesbians thrown in for good measure, and a much smaller 
um, percentage of straight people like me. Uh, it was it was one of the greatest spiritual experiences I've ever had. Uh, some of the men even came in drag because they felt that comfortable. Other men, a great number of the men who attended our church, had never felt comfortable in a church. They had never felt welcome. So we became their family. Um, we were in the trenches at that time. That's the only way that I can really think of to describe it because we were losing about one member of our church about every month, and we were grieving hard. We were also playing hard. When we got together for our church dances and, and get-togethers, we celebrated with every fiber of our being because we recognized that this was a moment. This was here and now, and we were loving, and we were alive, and that was to be celebrated. Uh, things were really tough in those days, as I'm sure you all know, the nurses who would slide the food in on the floor to the patients in the hospitals because they were scared. They didn't know what was causing this horrible disease. Was it something that came through the air that they could get, like a virus, or, God forbid, if you touch someone? Um, I remember at the time a very close friend of mine, another straight woman, said to me, we have to be very careful of our of our gay friends, because if we hug them or kiss them, you know, we could, you know, who knows, we could maybe contract the disease. And I thought about that seriously for, I don't know, a few hours or the day. And then I just thought to myself, I don't want to live in a world where I can't embrace my gay friends. And that was, you know, a great lesson to me in inclusion uh, versus separation. And it was when I probably decided that I was going to spend the rest of my life defending gay rights, or at least until there was full inclusion and gay rights was a totally done deal. Um, the um, Many of you know about the AIDS quilts. For those of you who don't, people would make these beautiful quilts for their friends who had died of AIDS. And they, the first time they were shown was in D.C. Uh, covering the whole mall. And our church, dressed all in white, would go among the rows, and when we would see people who were suffering from their, their <clears throat> guilt their, and their grief, um, we would go and put our arms around them, you know, support them. And uh, sometimes for people, this happened to me many times, as I walked the quilt, I would have a shortness of breath because I saw someone's quilt that I didn't know had died because I hadn't seen them for a few months. Some of them were in New York. <clears throat> Some of them were from L.A. Um, and uh, it was just, a, it was a tough time for all of us, who were losing people all around us. Um, our, our minister, Sandy Scott, who was a little fireball woman of love and compassion, um, later went to the hospitals where the nurses had been shoving the trays in and held support groups to support them in hopefully understanding um, that you couldn't get sick from touching a person with AIDS. But she also 
added support for their um, their caregiving and other people who were caregiving at the time, which is a really valuable um, service that she provided. Uh, that's why I always loved Princess Diana, because when she was photographed hugging men with AIDS, it changed a lot of minds and hearts, and people thought, well, if she can do that, you know, we probably can do that too. And um, likewise here in this country, Elizabeth Taylor, you know, uh, in in possible loss of her career, and there were people who blamed her and who rejected her, but she was a great supporter of people with AIDS. Um, I was at the uh, first march in Washington when we marched to get some attention for AIDS and for AIDS research and AIDS medicines for, you know, people with AIDS, because nothing was being done, nothing at all. And um, most of the churches were relegated to the back of the march, and our church was right up front behind the people with AIDS and the parents of people with AIDS. And I was very proud of that because it meant that we, I knew that we were doing the right work and that we were making a difference in the AIDS community. When I came back to New York, it took me over a year to find a church I felt comfortable with that had both the spiritual aliveness and the inclusivity that I had experienced in L.A. And I found it here at SPSA. And I'm equally proud of this church for all that we've done for LBGT rights and for our inclusiveness and true love and appreciation and making people feel welcome, some of whom who came here also didn't feel, um, didn't feel welcomed by their own home churches. And as a matter of fact, in L.A., I forgot to say this, there were, there were people who had been totally rejected from their home churches and from their families, uh, much like Lee was saying. And uh, one beautiful young man, he had been sort of barred from his sister's house because she, he wasn't allowed to touch his nephews because, again, she was afraid that he would somehow give his disease to them. And there was a young man in our church who didn't want his parents to know he was gay because he didn't want to be rejected. And they came to visit, and he got very ill, and he, he chose to bleed to death rather than let his parents know he was gay and to go to the hospital. Um, that's pretty radical. And that was another reason that I committed myself to a world where people who are different um, are accepted fully. So thank you to all of you for being my spiritual support here at SPSA.